Uh, Sam Baker is going to introduce our speaker this afternoon and, and just say uh, that we are very glad that Carol is going to be able to speak to us about women's writers. I want to say a few other things first. Uh, we have a very distinguished visitor with us this afternoon, and I want Ben Linforce to uh, just say a word. Uh, James Curry has had a career in publishing, mainly on Africa. He started his career uh, as being a representative for Oxford University Press in South Africa in the, in the 60s, and uh, went on to run the African Writers Series at Heinemann, which was the uh, most profitable line of Heinemann books <laughs> ever. And he also uh, started his own press, James Scurry Publishers, which continued to publish academic and literary books on Africa. So we're very pleased to have those of you who've been here have a history here of at least a decade. May remember the time he gave an address on the African Writers Series in the 70s. Thank you, James. We're very glad to have you with us. Uh, I want to uh, say again that we try to encourage members of the British Studies Seminar to put copies of recent reviews. Uh, this is the one way that we are able to read each other's work. Uh, there is a review that I just wrote about our speaker next week, his recent book, and I think that he may not like it uh, very much. We'll see. Uh, I also want to say that this is the penultimate edition of the 150 books that are to be recommended, recommended to all undergraduates to read or at least be familiar with before they graduate. And I'll pass this around just so you'll be able to get some idea of it. But for those of you who would actually like a copy, uh, just let uh, Holly know and we will uh, get it to you. It will be, uh, this is a project that's been going on for some three years now, and this is about ready to go to press. It will be uh, about half the size in a spiral bounder and binder and will be uh, distributed to all uh, students in liberal arts uh, at the beginning of the uh, uh, semester, uh, with, along with a poster uh, that has just the titles of all of the 150 books. Sam? It's a, it's a real privilege and honor to introduce uh, Carol McKay, um, who doesn't really need an introduction to uh, so many of you since she's such a, a stalwart of the Afternoon British Studies Seminar and of the, the Junior Fellows uh, lunches as well, um, and of the English Department and of the general community here at UT. Also, it's, um, it's intimidating to introduce an an expert on biography and autobiography, uh, because you know one is thrown into reflections on the on the um, uh, genre and a lot of what I know about the genre. I feel like I know uh, from talking with Carol about it over the years. She's our expert in the English department on life writing, and also, of course, uh, really um, our central and centrally active Victorianist. Those two topics go together. Uh, I think uh, it's fair to say that one of the things we most enjoy about uh, Victorian authors is uh, the very uh, detailed sensibility they have for thinking about all of the factors that, that make for a life, um, for the lives of the characters who they introduce to us uh, for their own 
um, tales of their own formations. Um, and that, that nuance we associate with um, uh, the Victorians is something that Carol has uh, made a career of, of studying. Uh, maybe most um, uh, uh, ambitiously today in her wonderful book, Creative Negativity, for Victorian Exemplars of the Female Quest, which uh, Stanford published. Um, and you know, which I really remember enjoying reading when I first arrived at UT and was getting to know um, uh, everybody here in the scene here because I feel like Carol's project there and all of her work really resonates um, with the best of what the English Department in British Studies has done over the years. Uh, Carol's a fantastic teacher. Um, uh, the uh, uh, section on teaching awards on her long CV is uh, very hearty uh, with uh, the Regents Outstanding Teaching Award, um, you know, heading it up. And uh, also the area of service, um, Carol is second to none in the English Department in a big project that she has underway right now, which combines, I think, really research teaching and um, local service is the British Women Writers Conference upcoming here um, <clears throat> in April at UT, which we're all very excited about and which we'll be hearing more about in her talk. and in our discussion afterwards. Well, thank you, Sam, for that introduction. You haven't had to do that for me before. I think I've had to do it for you maybe once or twice, but we'll continue passing it back and forth. Um, I'm going to pass around a few um, items that I think will give you something to, to glance at while I'm talking. But before I do, I'd like to introduce Casey Sloan. Casey, wave at everyone, uh, who is a postdoc uh, here in the English department right now, and she is one of the co-organizers of the conference. Uh, she will stay around afterwards to help answer questions, and I may be asking her a few questions as we go along. So what I'm going to do is pass around um, an overview of the conference, which just uh, lists the general schedule and the keynote addresses. I'll start with Roger here. And then something on the special events that are uh, in, going on in conjunction with the conference. And Elizabeth Garber, back at the back, and Diana Light, wave two, uh, will be uh, conducting a, a session at the HRC where there will be an exhibit available on Friday between 11 and 1 o'clock in the Dinius Room. And for that last half hour, they will be talking about uh, the collection here and how people could be making good use of it who are arriving for the first time. We're also going to have two events at the PCL. One is just the uh, uh, exhibit that has been put together uh, called New Frontiers, Women Writers and the British Raj. And then uh, on the afternoon of Friday, oh no, Thursday, um, we will be having a uh, research workshop in the Perry Logan Library for especially the attendees who are, would like to be learning more about, again, our libraries and research tactics, but it will also be available to others of you if you wish to stop by. So that's this one. And then the last thing uh, is a list of the uh, previous papers I've given to British Women Writers Conferences going back to 1996, and on the back, some of the panels that I've chaired. And I'm doing this for you. Uh, uh, to provide an opportunity for you to see all the different kinds of topics, the kind of range and depth that I think has been going on for this conference over the last 25 years. 26 years ago, in 1992, 
a group of scholars whose work was focused on 18th and 19th century British women writers meant to draft a mission statement and hold their first annual conference, that time at the University of Oregon. That mission statement reads as follows. In an effort to encourage further scholarly efforts, including collaboration and discussion, this conference moves beyond strict literary boundaries and includes presentations on women's political, legal, medical, religious, and scientific writing. Our goal is to truly expand the canon, which means in part redefining literature. We support an atmosphere of genuine inquiry and interaction among conference participants who include graduate students and established scholars alike. Last spring, the 25th annual conference was held at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the conference was entitled Generations. It celebrated the accomplishments of the British Women Writers Association over the previous quarter century. As a retrospective, Generations considered in what ways we had fulfilled the vision set forth in 1992, how we had grown as a community of scholars, what authors we had recovered, and our impact on academia at large. A year later, scholars and graduate students here at the University of Texas at Austin are taking up the gauntlet by staging the 26th annual British Women Writers Conference under the rubric New Directions. Our call for papers encouraged turning to the future to ask crucial methodological, theoretical, and content-based questions about our various fields, and asking questions like, what do we mean by British, by women, by writers? We indicated that we would welcome papers and panel proposals addressing change, development, destabilization, and potential in both, of both British women writers and the field of British women writers scholarship envisioning panels focused around the stability of gender, nation, and profession-based abstractions, as well as research on individuals living at the margins of those terms. We further specified our time span as incorporating British women's writing between the 18th and early 20th centuries. We received well over 200 proposals and have been able to accommodate some 150 of them. Presenters include graduate students and faculty from around Texas, UT Austin, Southwestern, Texas State University, Texas Christian University, Baylor, Rice, Texas A&M, and Southern Methodist University, and across the continental United States, as well as Canada, Taiwan, Australia, and the United Kingdom. Today, I intend to provide you with a preview of our conference by highlighting some of its chief interests and concerns and in particular, to invite you to one or more of our three keynote lectures. More on that later. I want to characterize some of our perennial themes and point toward new and evolving strategies in the interdisciplinary fields that we bring to bear in our studies of British women writers. Recovering, that is, uncovering, discovering, and publishing or republishing unknown or little-known authors, in effect expanding the canon, continues to be one of our main goals, but now we have innovative technological tools to aid us. All along, issues of individual identity have been central to our concerns, and now we are increasingly attuned to questions of national, ethnic, racial, religious, sexual, and gender identity, which demand our attention and consideration. 
Post-colonial studies at their core emerged from scholarship into 18th and 19th century British imperial history, but we've only begun to explore their application to a wide range of genres, hence the plural term literatures, further requiring us to steep ourselves in the legal, publishing, and political realms we took for granted. And children's literature, once thought to be a minor field, and incidentally, primarily the purview of women writers, is now coming to the fore, revealing new insights through psychological and anthropological investigations. Here I recommend a panel entitled, Travelers, Hobbledehoydens, and Good Little Girls, New Forms of Agency. Literary and cultural <coughs> criticism in the 21st century has opened up new vistas, and the works of 18th and 19th century British women writers are providing fertile ground for, if not the genesis of, many of these evolving critical approaches. Eco-criticism, and in particular feminist eco-criticism, seems especially useful for understanding Emily Bronte's poetry, for example. And I find an especially intriguing title scheduled, Eco-feminism is an agricultural act, using George Edgerton's keynotes and discords to reinterpret Victorian eco-criticism. Meeting here at the Harry Ransom Center, none of us would take issue with the importance of archival study. And our conference has one panel devoted to navigating the archives, with three papers entitled New Frontiers, Empire, Pauline Claremont, and the Shelley Godwin Circle, Distributed Authorship and Feminist Archival Recovery, Nancy Kennard's Literary Labors, and Vanishing Victorians, researching lost British authors in the age of Google. This last title moves us into the territory of digitalization and textual editing, which is addressed in one panel that includes a paper with the provocative title, The Unsaid, trying to meet the challenges of encoding what manuscripts say without words. Needless to say, open access is also a topic for discussion a case where cooperative editing and online publishing can offset the trend toward an unmediated electronic record of our written heritage. Certainly some paper and panel titles in our conference program employ jargon that may be mystifying to the uninitiated. On a regular basis, I can recall how the Modern Language Association meetings in New York City prompted the New York Times to gleefully reproduce what it considered the most outrageous titles, predominantly ones that betrayed its own preoccupation with sexual topics. Much more on those controversial subjects later. I would contend, however, that the titles for our conference papers usually invoke, and thereby ground their analysis in, specific texts and authors. And you will be hearing from me about a mixture of the canonical and non-canonical before my talk has concluded. You might begin to see connections, potential conversations, as it were, between some of the papers I am citing. For instance, attention to the female body clearly emerges in the title, Unlacing the Body and Mind, Fashion and Feminism, in George Edgerton's Keynotes and Discords. You needn't know that Edgerton is the fantasiatta pseudonym of Mary Dunn Bright, or that keynotes and discards are her first two new woman short story collections to recognize from a previously cited title that these stories may also hold a key to understanding Victorian eco-criticism. 
Disability studies have made considerable headway theorizing contemporary literature, but the conference paper title Disability and Incarnation in the Monthly Packet promises that such studies can be fruitfully extended to a monthly Church of England periodical, in this case, one edited by a woman, Charlotte Young, for almost 50 years. And animal humanities, or non-human and post-human studies, which have proved a singular speciality for a number of literary scholars over the last quarter century, are productively employed by several of our presenters. Witness the Victorian non-human in George Eliot's Middlemarch, and one of our keynote topics will connect them to post-colonial interpretations. I have introduced this talk by referring to some of the history of the, of the annual 18th and 19th century British Women Conferences, as well as by beginning to characterize its ongoing themes and evolving concerns as they become manifest in our New Directions Conference. I've done so partly by citing some of the paper and panel titles for the conference, and I will continue to sprinkle my talk with other titles to pique your curiosity and to provide evidence of the kind of scholarship our call for papers el elicited. You can expect to hear about new authors, often hidden behind pseudonyms or plucked from anonymous attributions, and old standbys, most notably Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf, and the works on display will be both canonical and non-canonical. I will also provide brief overviews of the scholarly careers of our three keynote speakers and ask you to join me in speculating about their lectures based on the titles they have provided for us. To conclude my presentation, I'd like to share with you some of my own contributions to previous Br British Studies Women Conferences and to demonstrate how conference themes can direct and even jumpstart a scholarly career and to provide my own spur to new directions. So what will follow will be three sections with an interlude between section one and two. First, we think back through our mothers if we are women. That's a quote from Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf was quick to recognize what expectations she raised when she responded to a request by a Cambridge Women's College to speak on the subject of women in fiction. Actually, it was two such talks, one at Gert Newnham and one at Girton, that she combined when she revised and, re and published her remarks as A Room of One's Own in 1929. At first, she thinks her audience might be interested in, quote, simply a few remarks about Fanny Burney, a few more about Jane Austen, a tribute to the Brontes, and a sketch of Haworth Parsonage under snow, some witticisms, if possible, about Miss Whit Mitford, a respectful allusion to George Eliot, a reference to Mrs. Gaskell, and one would have done. But Wolf and our conference presenters know that the subject is not so simple. Not only might it mean women and what they are like, or women in the fiction they write, or women in the fiction that is written about them, or that somehow all three are inextricably mixed together, but that the list is woefully incomplete. There's been much more detective work since Wolf's time, and new techniques and fields of study have been brought to bear to discover the work of so-called lost women writers. But Wolf also points us toward considering another body of lost women writers whom we cannot recover, the ones who might have been but never were, the speculative tale she weaves about an imaginary Shakespeare's sister. Wolf goes on to say anon, 
or anonymous and pseudonymous, was often a woman. And we have needed to stop seeing Austin as our singular progenitor, as Janet Todd and Dale Spender corrected us in the late 1970s by subtitling one of their anthologies, 100 British Writers Before Austin. Uh, sorry, 100 British Women Authors Before Austin. And even Austin can be looked at newly, as evidenced by the multiple cinematic adaptations of her work and the critiques that surround them, one of which is featured as a New Directions conference paper entitled Bubble Hearts and Bare Chests in the Manga World of Pride and Prejudice. Moreover, Austin can be compared to other writers to bring out startling new observations about pre-19th century novels and their readers today, as one paper entitled New Directions for Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre suggests. A juxtaposition made richer, however, by the fact that Charlotte Bronte disliked Austin's fiction, finding it too narrow and perhaps thereby protesting too much. Bronte's studies continue to cry out for more attention to the third and youngest sister, Anne, and I'm sad to report that she doesn't figure in any of our program's entries. Actually, it's George Eliot, the male pseudonym of Mary Ann Evans, who figures most prominently of any author on our program. But the directive to consider her newly keeps those papers from being traditional or mundane. An entire panel entitled Queer and Feminist Eliot proffers a fascinating array of papers. One, Mary Garth, female building or self-cultivation in Middlemarch. Two, an incipient bog woman, Maggie Tulliver's prognosis in George Eliot's The Mill on the Floss. And three, decentering the Englishman and the Englishwoman too. Reading George Eliot's Alcarisi, this is Daniel Deronda's operatic diva mother, after Crenshaw, Crenshaw's intersectionality. And Kim Kimberly Crenshaw is an African-American professor of law at Columbia who coined the term intersectionality to define an analytic framework which attempts to identify how interlocking systems of power impact those who are most marginalized by society. Even just putting Margaret Oliphant's name alongside Eliot's in a paper title, as does Victorian Inceptions, Revision, Perception, and Redemption in Oliphant and Eliot, promises a lively discussion. Since Oliphant showed little restraint in her envy over Eliot's success and the personal affront she took to Eliot's unfortunate choice of title for one of her Westminster Review essays, Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. I will admit to having drawn attention to titles about novelists and Victorian ones at that, but if I branch out to mention a couple of, or actually three Victorian poets, I can at least widen my scope a bit. I'm thinking now about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, whose works prominently reside here at the HRC and in Bar ba Baylor's Armstrong Library Collection, and whose poetry for the common reader most often comes down to her sonnets from the Portuguese and How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. That's in reference, of course, to her larger-than-life romance with her husband and fellow poet, Robert Browning. But there's so many other sides to Barrett Browning and her poetry. For our conference, I can highlight a panel <coughs> entitled A Trio of New Approaches to the Runaway Slave at Pilgrim's Point with the following papers. 
Through the Bars, The Poetics of Racial Reproduction and Elizabeth Barrett Browning's The Runaway Slave at Pilgrim's Point. I see you staring at my face, looking at the Liberty Bell 1848 gift book, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Harriet Martineau, Poetry versus Essays. This litany leads me to the paper by a pair of co-presenters, Queering the Victorian Poetics of Love and Marriage, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Michael Field, and the Reformation of Marriage Laws. Little known outside the field of Victorian poetry, Michael Field is the pseudonym of an aunt and a niece, Catherine Bradley and Edith Cooper, who were also lovers. Their accomplishments in the arena of classic verse drama are only beginning to be properly acknowledged and, super and appreciated. And a, frank, and a conference on Victorian literature would be missing a crucial component if their name didn't appear on the program. Their name on our program recurs in comparison with another relative unknown, Vernon Lee, the pseudonym of the new woman novelist and essayist, Violet Paget. I'll leave you simply with that paper title, Venus Ekphrasis, that's a literary description of a visual work of art, and the triadic mode of creation in Vernon Lee and Michael Field. These references to understudied British women authors and their work recommend a revisionist approach to compiling and publishing anthologies and to continually opening up our own teaching syllabi. And I've not yet touched on Irish or Scottish writers or those who were writing in the colonies, many of which would in the near future become members of the British Commonwealth, some even on the road to independence. Race, class, and gender were the watchwords coming to the fore in the late 20th century criticism. But some second wave Anglo-American feminists were slow to include race and class in their agenda. That tra trajectory has been largely rectified, however, and intersectional feminism admits masculinity studies to its terrain and reconsideration of the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century timeframes as constituting the long 19th century suggests that even periodicity has been rebooted. And now for the interlude, the elephant in the room or the bull in the china shop. What happened to the alluring terms I set forth in my title, subversive, rebellious, and genre busting? I will in confess to introducing them partly in response to Roger's desire that I jazz it up a little. But they are legitimate terms, both in describing the women authors and their subject matter in question, and explaining how they were perceived by the status quo that found them so threatening. Victorian publishers in particular seemed to think they were being responsive to public opinion by refusing to depict fallen women, or women who were sexually active outside the bonds of marriage. Or if such women were to appear in print, they certainly couldn't be allowed protagonist status or have a happy ending to their tale. But even a relatively conservative woman like Elizabeth Gaskell, she was the wife of a Unitarian minister, and she refrained from any mention of Charlotte Bronte's unrequited love for her married Belgian professor in her Bronte biography. Even Gaskell wrote an entire novel about a prostitute. Her 1853 novel, Ruth, is the kind of compassionate social critique that questions punishing the victim of seduction and stigmatizing legitimacy, 
as well as speculating about the possibilities for reintegration into society if societal judgment can eventually be satisfied. Despite apparently succumbing to the necessity of her titular heroine dying by novel's end, Gaskell has nonetheless created a heroine with whom her readership has em empathetically identified, surely itself a subversive act. I look forward to attending a panel devoted to the subject of fallen women and hearing a paper entitled, These Feeble Florets, Rereading the Fallen Woman in Gaskell's Ruth and Ruskin's of Queen's Gardens. Is it subversive to broach the topic of sexuality directly or indirectly? That would seem to be the case in the Victorian era, more so than in the ribald 18th century and Regency periods, whose published book list boasted titles like that by a scandalous courtesan, The Memoirs of Harriet Wilson, written by herself. But if writing about female sexuality with respect to heterosexual relations was subversive, how much more controversial might we expect writing about lesbian relationships to be? My colleague Lisa Moore is one of many literary and historical scholars who has been writing about the role of same-sex attraction in the life and work of 18th century British women writers over the last quarter century. And her 1997 study, Dangerous Intimacies, Toward a Sapphic History of the British Novel, urges us to look not merely at Austen, but beyond to the novels of Mariah Edgeworth and Sarah Scott, just as her 2011 book, Sister Arts, The Erotics of Lesbian Landscapes, encourages us to encompass the literary and visual art of Mary Delaney and the poetry of Anna Seward. I suspect it will not surprise you to know that Lisa was a keynote speaker at an earlier British Women's Conference, this one held at the University of Colorado in 2012 on landmarks. Her title, Queer Politics, The Lesbian Landscapes of Sonnet History, marks another step beyond her just previous book. You can anticipate that more LGBTQ topics addressed will be addressed during our conference, announced by such paper titles as Something Particular, Formal Queerness in Eliza Haywood's The British Recluse, or Queering Erotic Triangles in Sense and Sensibility, there's something about Mary, queering Mary Bennett on the stage, and queer temporality for envisioning post-Victorian masculinity in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. The Victorian period was responsible for a decade, the 1860s, synonymous with a literary subgenre, the sensation novel, written primarily for and by women, though many of them were published anonymously or pseudonymously. The popularity of the sensation novel reflects both the previously unmet needs it served for both readers and writers, and the general satisfaction found in breaking traditional boundaries. Variously defined in terms of its subject matter, infidelity, bigamy, murder, sensation fiction was also derided because of its popularity with a population of readers recently expanded by higher rates of literacy and the availability of cheaply produced print media. The fears expressed in the press came from critics espousing middle-class standards of proper literature, and well-written could not include the prolific output of Mary Elizabeth Braddon, for instance, never mind the fact that Dickens and Thackeray and Collins wrote at breakneck speed to meet the relentless demands of serial publication. 
The year 1992 that marked the inception of the British Women Writers Association also saw publication of two key texts about the sensation novel. My colleague Anne Svetkovich's Mixed Feelings, Feminism, Mass Culture, and Victorian Sensationalism, and Lynn Pickett's The Improper Feminine, The Woman's Sensation Novel and, new, and The New Woman Writing, both of which made Braddon, Mrs. Henry Wood, and Rhoda Broughton household names to the cognoscenti. I look forward to hearing the conference papers with titles like Catherine Crow's Pioneering Fiction, Sensational Scientific Instruction, Unmeet for Punishment, Indulging Incompetence in Ellen Woods, The Channings, and Roland York, and Lady Audley's Punishment, Policing Gender Performances in Lady Audley's Secret. Sensation novels, gothic fiction, tales of the supernatural, all part of popular culture, all dealing with the emotions, all ripe for application of affect theory, and all coming from and or about uppity women, troublemakers, rebels, potentially violent ones, and genre busters. Our attention was riveted in the late 70s and early 80s by titles like Tilly Olson's Silences, Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar's Mad Woman in the Attic, Winifred Hughes' The Maniac in the Cellar, Joanna Rush's How to Suppress Women's Writing, Phyllis Rose's Parallel Lives, Five Victorian Marriages, Elaine Showalter's The Female Malady, Women, Madness, and English Culture, 1830 to 1980, and two by Nina Auerbach, Women and the, Woman and the Demon and Romantic Imprisonment, Women and Other Glorified Outcasts. A compendium by Susan Hamilton entitled Criminals, Idiots, Women, and Minors, Victorian Women by Women on Women, was published in the mid-90s and rushed to reprint before the decade was out. And the most recent volume of this ilk to cross my desk is Brazen, Rebel Ladies Who Rocked the World, a graphic novel or really selection of short stories by Penelope Bajot, who treats iconoclasts as role models. And even if only one of them, Nellie Bly and an American, is a writer, they all reflect the indomitable spirit of the women writers we will be celebrating during the upcoming event we call New Directions. And so I have brought in some books, which I'll leave up here if anyone wants to see them uh, at, at the end of the session. This is the brazen title, the, the, uh, the graphic novel. The next section, second, centerpieces. I'd now like to turn my attention to the three keynote addresses and one performance, which unfortunately has an attendance limit due to our choice of venue, but more of its future before I am through. I'll talk to Casey about that. This is the performance. This is the performance. The, the, yeah. the plenaries are... Are, are... Yes, so we have three keynote uh, uh, speeches and, and one performance. I, <clears throat> our first keynote speaker is Parama Roy, professor of English at the University of, of California at Davis. Her address is entitled, Of Deities, Animals, and the Colonial State. Her research has focused on post-colonial theory and literatures, Victorian literature, taste and dietetics, or diet and its effects on health, and the non-human turn. She is the author of Indian Traffic, Identities in Question in Colonial and Post-Colonial India, and Elementary Tracks, 
Appetites, Aversions, and the Postcolonial, and co-editor of States of Trauma, Gender and Violence in South Asia. Her current book project, tentatively titled Empire's Non-Humans, seeks to understand the degree to which the non-human, whether animal, vegetal, telluric, or terrestrial, <clears throat> extraterrestrial, monstrous, or spectral, is key to a comprehensive grasp of the imperial world, whether in terms of its imaginative circuits, its political formations, or its bodily registers. She will be delivering her lecture at 445 on Thursday, April 12th in Belmont Hall. Stimulating and original are two adjectives that recur in descriptions of her publications. I think we can expect a far-ranging discussion focused on the colonial experience in South Asia during the Victorian period, when animal imagery was variously employed by the mother country to describe its imperial population. Our second keynote will be delivered by Jill Galvin, Associate Professor of English at Ohio State University and a graduate of Plan 2's uh, program and the uh, an, uh, major in English. Jill was a student in my first English honors class on the Brontes, and I supervised her honors thesis entitled The Procrustean Bed, Literature's Chronicle of the Suppressed Individual in Victorian Literature. Earning her doctorate at the University of California at Los Angeles, she began her climb up the tenure track ladder, publishing her first book under the title, The Sympathetic Medium, Feminine Channeling, the Occult, and Communication Technologies, 1859 to 1919. Her previous research has focused on long 19th century British media technologies, spiritualism, mesmerism, psychical research, and both Victorian and contemporary ideas of the post-human. She is currently researching representations of marriage. Her latest book-length project argues that late Victorian and early 20th century stories of marriage co-evolved with literary realism. She is also co-editor with Elsie Mitchie of a forthcoming essay collection, Replotting Marriage in 19th Century British Literature, that re-examines the cultural and formal elements of marriage stories. She will be delivering her lecture entitled Garden, Space, Interiority, Marriage and Modern Character at 1045 on Friday, April 13th in the University Teaching Center. I am grateful to Jill for introducing me to Elizabeth von Arnhem. Although without knowing about its authorship, I had seen the film adaptation of her 1922 novel, The Enchanted April. Some of you may be familiar with the 1992 Academy Award-nominated film starring Josie Lawrence, Miranda Richardson, Joan Plowright, Jim Broadbent, and Alfred Molina. And it was also adapted as a Broadway play in 1925, an American feature film in 1935, a Tony Award-nominated stage play in 2003, a musical play in 2010, and a serial on BBC Radio in 2015. How many of you have heard of Elizabeth von Arnhem before? Oh, good. All right. The author was born Marionette Beauchamp in Sydney, Australia in 1866. Raised in London and Lausanne, Switzerland, by her first marriage, she became Countess von Arnhem Schlegenthin. And after her second marriage, she was referred to as Elizabeth Russell 
Countess Russell, sister-in-law to Bernard Russell. Although known in her early life as Mary, after the 1898 anonymous publication of her first book, Elizabeth and Her German Garden, she was known to her readers, eventually to her friends, and finally even to her family, simply as Elizabeth. That novel, the focal point of Jill's uh, keynote address, became extremely popular, reprinted 11 times during its first year of publication, with 21 editions in print halfway through the second. Her books, with only one exception, and that's the 1936 autobiographical All the Dogs of My Life, were always published anonymously, with the merescription by the author of Elizabeth and Her German Garden. One critic describes that first book as, quote, a euphoric hymn to nature in the romantic tradition. Its originality and peculiar talent rest on a character called the Man of Wrath, a benevolent caricature of Elizabeth's first husband. It is a novel of passionate rebellion against established demands, formal and private, made on married women, even by a, a devoted husband. A not-so-benevolent depiction of a demanding husband is featured in Von Arnhem's 1921 novel, Vera, and I will have that up here for anyone to examine later. The publisher, John Middleton Murray, writing to his wife and Von, Van, Von Arnhem's cousin, Catherine Mansfield, about the negative reviews of Vera, observed, of course, my dear, when critics are faced with the Wuthering Heights written by Jane Austen, they don't know what to say. I am sure that you join me in being curious about what Jill Galvin will have to say about Elizabeth von Arnhem. Our final keynote speaker is Susan Lancer, Professor Emerita of Comparative Literature, English, and Women's and Gender Studies at Brandeis University. Her most recent books are The Sexuality of History, Modernity and the Sapphic, 1565 to 1830, which won the American Historical Society's Joan Kelly Prize, an honorable mention for the American Society for 18th Century Studies Gottschalk Prize, Narrative Theory Unbound, Queer and Feminist Interventions, co-edited with Robin Warhol, which received honorable mention for the Narrative Society's Perkins Prize, and Fictions of Authority, Woman Writers and Narrative Voice, first published in 1992 and soon to be reissued by Cornell University Press. President of the American Society for 18th Century Studies, Sue will deliver her keynote lecture, Narrative Justice, Gender, Race, and the Rescue and Rescue in the Age of Austin at the closing session of New Directions, starting at 4.45 on Saturday, April 14th, in Juster Auditorium. When Sue reports that her scholarship has been focused within three primary arenas, narrative theory and the novel, with a particular interest in women writers, 18th century European studies, and gender and sexuality studies, we can expect her to connect the history of sexuality and race relations, not only in the novels of Jane Austen, but in representations of the French Revolution, as seen from Britain and on the continent. Several years ago, James Lowlin and I had the pleasure of recommending a submission to Texas Studies in Language and Literature for publication in the journal, then being edited by Kurt Heinzelman. Entitled Loose Characters in Mary Cowden Clark's The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines, the article introduced me to a female Shakespearean scholar who, with her husband, Charles, 
produced a concordance to Shakespeare in 1846 before going on to write a series of novellas under the general title of The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines, first collected in a single volume in 1850 and then variously edited and republished throughout the 19th century. When I was selected to write the essay on life writing for the Cambridge Companion of Victorian Women's Writing, I was intrigued by the idea of considering Cowden Clark's novellas as an exercise in speculative life writing, both in the sense of working with fictional characters and in the sense of trying to recreate a, a psychological backstory for an adult, whether real or fictional. Then, as James and I considered the possibilities for staging the work of an 18th or 19th century British woman writer for this conference, he hit upon the plan to call upon some of his students from the UT English Department's Shakespeare at Wyndale program to perform a staged reading of excerpts from Cowden Clark's Rosalind and Cecilia, The Friends. The performance will also incorporate material from Shakespeare's As You Like It, Cowden Clark's source for the tale, and will conclude with some discussion about the importance of 19th century British women writing about Shakespeare. Because the performance will be conducted in the Protho Theatre here at the HRC on the evening of Friday the 14th, seating is limited and we have to give priority to the conference participants who are signing up for the event. However, we will circulate, Casey has it, um, a, a waiting list in case some of seating becomes available and if you have an interest as this goes around. And I do have an early, not the first edition, but an early edition of The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines I can show you. The 4.30 panel that afternoon on Cowden Clark and Shakespeare will include papers by Lauren Byler, author of the TSL article already mentioned, by Cassidy Schultz, a Plan 2 and Winedale student. Is Cassidy here? There's Cassidy in the far back row. And, um, and also, do we have Austin? Yes, okay. Uh, Austin Hanna, who is uh, going to be one of the performers as well. Um, and the last paper will be called The Harpy and the Shrew, Shakespeare's Katerina and Beatrice in 19th Century Britain. And I hope that uh, when James returns to us from Los Angeles, where he's at the Shakespeare Association meeting, we can talk to him about maybe having another performance of, of this uh, particular scene and the discussion that we're, we're hoping to, to uh, advance. And now for my last section, down memory lane. Before I conclude with an overview of some of my contributions to previous, previous 18th and 19th century British Women Writers Conferences, I'd like to look back a shorter distance to last semester when I taught a graduate seminar entitled 19th Century British Women Writers and the Dual Protagonist. When I was designing the course the previous year, I thought it might lead to some paper proposals for the New Directions Conference, and I was deeply gratified that six such proposals were accepted. <clears throat> Let me now indulge in a listing of them. Diana Light, Diana is there. Um, <clears throat> Reparative Tetrahedron Dynamic Power Relations and Charlotte Bronte's Shirley a brilliant extension of Rene Girard and Eve Sedgwick's theory of triangular desire. Raylan Gose, is Raylan here? Okay, if anybody else from the class is here when I start to read your name and title, just raise your hand. Uh, Raylan, um, 
perilous prize, mythological expression of desire and power in Mary Barton and Shirley. And this is a remarkable analysis of mermaid imagery. Sarah Schuster, narrative instability as political mediation in Shirley and Mary Barton, which is a bid for the reader's controlled emotional response. Brie Winega, empathy and infantilization of the working class in Mary Barton. And this is showing how the status quo is made to prevail at the expense of equality. Jonathan Salinas, Jonathan, I know myself back there at one point. Uh, Britannia rule the waves. Britons can be slaves. The revenge of the mistress in Elizabeth Gaskell's Mary Barton, a tale of Manchester life. Now, and the failure of an imperial nation to heed <coughs> warnings. And Danielle Dye, all the wondrous combinations of the universe, the cosmic and the personal in Daniel Deronda, in which Eliot's message that everything within her text relates to everything else is expounded. Although none of these papers deals with the first and last novels in the course, Austin's Sense and Sensibility, and Mary Chumley's Red Pottage, I can say with confidence that their writers not only met the goals I had set for the course, but they went well beyond them. As I review the papers I delivered to 13 previous conferences conducted by the British Women Writers Association, I am first struck by the rich array of themes and topics they invoked in their calls for papers. Moving back in time, they include generations, making a scene, landmarks, curiosity, journeys, fresh threads of connection, female marginalia annotating empire, speaking with authority, and re or recollecting British women writers. These calls for papers prompted me to re-examine and intensify my research and understanding of women writers whose work I had only begun to study and write about. After all, I had written a dissertation on the soliloquies in the novels of William Makepeace Thackeray. And its outgrowth in my first book, Soliloquy in 19th Century Fiction, still fell within traditional lines of narrative and genre criticism. Although even then, I had the foresight to write an epilogue featuring the free and direct speech of Austin Eliot and Wolfe. Beginning in 1996, my first three papers for British Women Writers Conferences were entitled, She Lies Not Unremembered, and Thackeray Ritchie Writes Back Through Her Mothers, Herself, Her Story, Julia Margaret Cameron's Autobiographical Fragment, and The Multiple Deconversions of Annie Wood Besant. Those of you familiar with my second book, Creative Negativity, Four Victorian Exemplars of the Female Quest, can recognize the seeds of my subject matter in those papers, although I did add a fourth figure with Elizabeth Robbins, the American-born actress who relocated to London, where she performed in Ibsen dramas and went on to write novels, at first pseudonymously, and plays for the suffrage stage. Calls for conference papers encourage scholars to think freshly about their research interests, to take different perspectives on where we are headed, and participating in conferences gives us an opportunity to share our ideas, receive constructive criticism, and open ourselves to cutting-edge work of our colleagues. Conferences generate new directions and alliances, often leading to future panel groupings, essay collections, and even connections with book publishers. Besides my own papers at previous British Women Writers Conferences, 
I have volunteered or been asked to moderate yet another array of topics, and they prefigure some of my current and future pedagogical and scholarly agenda. Having edited a critical edition of Besant's 1885 autobiographical sketches, set me on a course to teach classes on life writing and to continue exploring the controversial life of Besant, including her connections to the even more controversial Madame Blavatsky, founder and first president of the Theosophical Society. I promised Roger I would mention her, at least at some point. And I am only mentioning, I'm afraid. But as a result, I was alert to a 2018 article in Representations by Gary Visavonathan entitled In Search of Madame Blavatsky, Reading Exoteric, Retrieving the Esoteric, which I suspect will aid me in my analysis of how Blavatsky and Besant served as culture critics and theorists of religion, paving the way for recovery of so-called lost practices that can aid us in interpreting such ephemeral concepts as memory and the imagination. Another trajectory signaled by my research for British Women Writers Conferences is my book in progress, and oh, and I do have the latest biography of Annie Besant, uh, written by someone at the Sorbonne who has done the, the first I think, uh, critical biography that at the same time doesn't have an agenda it's, it's, is itself writing. Uh, many of the uh, previous biographies have been either pro-socialist and anti-theosophist or vice versa. Um, so my, my book in progress, Anonymity, Pseudonymity, and Femininity, about the advantages and disadvantages, personal and for the public good, for 19th century uh, women writers who variously concealed and revealed their identities. Besides including authors I've already written about, the Brontes, Eliot, Ritchie, and Robbins, this project will mark my first foray into the poetry and drama of that two-woman team who constitute the pseudonym Michael Field. I hope this presentation about our upcoming conference and some of the paper and <coughs> keynote titles I have cited whets your appetite for attending some of the events sponsored by New Directions, and also for reading more works by the subversive, rebellious, and genre-busting 18th and 19th century British women writers we will be showcasing. <laughs>